back to Northway's D-Group Podcast. Like always, I'm your host, Rodney Mills, and I'm so glad that you've stopped by to visit. We're apprenticing our lives to Jesus. We're learning to love, live, and lead like Him. Now, we've made our way through a tremendous amount of study. We've talked about the disciples' freedom formula, the disciples' priority. We've talked about the many commands of Jesus to love God, love people, to love them the way he loves us, and even to love our enemies. And we've even made our way through how we might live our lives like him, as we've covered so much ground around spiritual practices for the Jesus way. And we're nearing the end of our study. And now we want to talk about what it might mean to lead like Jesus, how we might become a people that influence the world. Before we dive in, let me just refresh your memory to our central premise for this whole study. Remember this? A disciple of Christ is a person who is willing to give up their preconceived ideas of what life is all about, to abandon their previous way of living, immersing themselves into the way, the truth, and the life of the Master in order to be like Christ. You see, Jesus' call is a radical call. It's one that requires us to potentially dismantle and deconstruct much of what we think about the way life is supposed to work. This is why that word for repent, metanoia, just continues to play such a major role in our lives. It means to think about how you've been thinking, to experience a fundamental reorientation of how you view life in the world. And we need a new vision for our lives, a new lens through which to see our own ideal future, the person that we are to become, the person we were meant to become. And that lens through which we now see is through the life of Christ. And so, if we're to follow in the practical steps of Jesus, the everyday walking around changes of activity towards our families and our neighbors, the least of these, and so on, we must take on what Paul called the mind of Christ. So let's talk about the mind of Christ for a few moments. In Philippians 2, this is the New King James Version, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now this is so important to understand. Paul is instructing us to apprentice our lives to Jesus here. If you're going to love, live, and lead like Jesus, you've got to take on his way of thinking. Take on the mind of Christ. And what was his thought process? What was his mindset? Well, let's move to the Christian Standard Bible, the different translation now, and let's take a look at what Paul was talking about. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So very quickly, I want to take this section, I want to break it down just a bit. First of all, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Notice the responsibility that Paul places squarely on us. Adopt the same attitude. You adopt the same attitude. The NIV says to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Peterson translates it as, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
You see, it's a choice we make to take on a new attitude, the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, of course, Jesus was great and awesome and deserving of the royal status he held as Son of God, but he chose to not cling to that status. He knew there was a bigger purpose at stake, so he was willing to give it up, to give up his position. In some ways, you might legitimately be superior to others. Maybe in your position at work, you outrank others. Or maybe your financial status affords you more material comforts than others. Or maybe you have better skills or qualities. But to take on the mind of Christ, to adopt his attitude, you can't let any of that get in the way. Listen, and remember this, status seekers don't have the mind of Christ. Paul goes on to say, instead, or as an alternative to holding on to his position or status, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He emptied himself. In fact, your translation might even say he made himself nothing. And again, we see Paul emphasizing the making of a choice. He purposefully exchanged the glories of heavenly existence with all the privileges and security and lack of trials and tribulations that he experienced, and he traded it for something quite the opposite making himself nothing. Jesus gave up his sense of entitlement. Instead of being self-seeking, he became selfless. Oh, maybe you've seen the reality show Undercover Boss. The CEOs of sometimes really big corporations, they put on a disguise and they insert themselves in at very lowly positions within the organizations in order to see what things are really like out there on the front lines. And so they're often taking orders from young and relatively inexperienced managers, and they're subjected to sweeping floors and, and other menial tasks. Well, it's probably not the best comparison at all, but that's in a sense what the God of the universe does. He lays aside all of his credentials and rights and privileges, and he comes to subject himself to normal human life, having to obey his mother, his school teachers, dealing with bullies on the playground and taking orders from his father as he learned to be a carpenter. He lived a selfless and obedient life. He gave up his sense of entitlement, emptying himself by assuming the form of a servant. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time together here. Understand this powerful statement. He took on the form of a servant. This is the role he assumed. Leader, teacher, rabbi, healer, preacher, Yes, all of those things, but at the heart of it all was this underlying role of servant. And I would submit to you that if you are going to follow Jesus, if you're going to apprentice your life to his, then this is your role from here on out, servant. You know, the modern day apprentice may be learning to be a plumber or an electrician or even engineer, but for the followers of Christ, we are in training to be a servant to God and to others. Now, it may take on different aspects and forms from person to person, depending on our giftings and skills and placement in life, but at all times and in all places, it is for the sake of serving. And we'll come back to that in a few moments to go a lot further with it, but for right now, let's finish out our analysis with Paul. Let's go back to verse 7. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
Now, that word humbled, humbled, it means to take a lower position. He, be- he became obedient. And to be obedient is to submit to someone else. And of course, he became obedient to the point of death. Not just any kind of death either. It was death on a cross, the ultimate sacrifice. And again, all for the sake of others. Let me spell it out for you even more succinctly. Uh, it, It can be summed up with five words that start with the letter S. Jesus was a surrendered, selfless, submitted, sacrificial servant. Now, we've had a mantra that you've been saying with me many times throughout this study, that that the aim of my life is to be like Christ. And so in light of this new succinct summary of the life of Christ, are you willing to stay, still willing to say that? I mean, when you look at those words, surrendered, selfless, submitted, and sacrificial, I mean, it's not like it's the most exciting lifestyle you'd ever want to jump into, right? I mean, what, what could ever cause a person to chase after something like that? Well, of course... The answer is also found in the life of Christ. And the answer brings us right back to love. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the only explanation for why Jesus would embrace the surrendered, selfless, submitted life of a sacrificial servant. Love. And remember, it's not just any kind of love, but it's that Trinitarian agape love. We've been using that C.S. Lewis definition, a selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. When you hear Paul talking about love, and listen, you'll hear it quite often, this is always the kind of love that he has in mind. Listen to it in Ephesians 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in the way of love, he says. And what does that way look like? Giving up yourself for others. Paul said it to the Galatians, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Serve one another how? Through love. Not obligation, not dread, not begrudgingly, but serve one another through love. Love is the pursuit, and servanthood is the natural overflow. Well, again, Paul says to the Thessalonians, And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. I mean, if there is any prayer we should pray, it is this. Jesus, cause your agape love for all people to grow within me, that I might be a servant like you. This is what it means to have the mind of Christ. Now, not only does this overarching synopsis of the life of Christ give us a model for what fully living out the servant lifestyle might look like, Jesus himself gave us some incredibly direct teaching around the subject as well. And we've touched on these more than once in our studies. The 10th chapter of Mark is so rich, you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago as we talked about the unencumbered life, how Jesus challenged the rich young ruler to go sell everything, give it to the poor, so he could wholeheartedly follow Christ. 
And that rich guy walks away, and the disciples are left to hear Jesus' follow-up talk. Jesus says it's tough for those who hold on to their possessions to experience the kingdom. The disciples come back with the question of, how does anyone have a chance of experiencing it? And to which Jesus responds that in our own strength it might not be possible, but with God all things are possible. So Peter thinks about it for a moment. I mean, he was a net dropper, you'll remember. And so he says, well, we have left everything to follow you. And to which Jesus replies, well, that's right. And you can be sure that you're going to live the blessed life because of it too. Anyone who lives sacrificially for the sake of me and the gospel of the kingdom gets in on the good life. And then very famously, Jesus adds to that. And he says, the first shall be last and the last first. The New Living Translation puts it this way, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And this is what Pastor Peterson refers to as the great reversal. He's emphasizing that the surrendered, selfless, submitted life of a sacrificial servant turns out to actually be the blessed life, the good life. Now, that scene is the, back, is the backdrop for the very next scene. And the next scene is also one we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but I want to dig into it even deeper. So as they head down the road, Jesus once again starts cluing them in to what's about to happen. He's predicting his betrayal, his trial, his death, and even his resurrection. So the sons of thunder, James and John, uh, they figure this is their chance to maybe climb the corporate ladder, and, and they practically beg Jesus to make them his right and left-hand men. And they actually say it. We want to sit in places of honor next to you. <laughs> what kind of arrogance? I mean, it's like they didn't hear a single thing Jesus said about the first being the last. And so we pick this up here in verse 41. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were just indignant. I mean, it really is pretty frustrating when folks act like that, isn't it? And so Jesus called them together. I mean, it's, it's like he just stopped the whole group down to put things straight. And he said this, You know that the rulers in this world, they lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those who are under them. And of course, like I said a couple of weeks ago, I love the way Peterson puts this, You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around. And when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. I mean, we've all seen this happen. You give someone a title of some kind, and all of a sudden, they want to make sure everyone knows who's the boss. I mean, you've seen it, right? But it's not just in organizational settings where this happens. We're all guilty of power plays in relationships, exerting our will over people, putting them in their place, we call it sometimes, trying to keep the upper hand or trying to get our way. But there is another approach, another approach to life and leadership the Jesus way of influencing others. Listen to verse 43. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus was correcting their thinking. He was telling them they've got to have an entirely new mindset, a whole new framework for how kingdom life works, how influence works. And he puts himself on display. He reminds them to take a look at his life. And it's like he's saying, 
Don't you see it, guys? I haven't just invited you into the brotherhood. I've invited you into servanthood. I've not just invited you into the family. I've been apprenticing you in the family business. And that business is one of love-motivated service to others. Follow my example. Man, this is a, a whole new approach, a radical rethinking. But among you, it will be different. I've shown you by example what being different looks like. And here it is in a nutshell. I came not to be served, but to serve by giving my life away for the sake of others. Now get this, friends. Christ's plan and that which produces maximum blessing to the world and to the church is servanthood. No doubt about it. And this is what Paul was saying when he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But among you it will be different, Jesus says. And is that true of us? Is it true of you? Oh, is it true of me? Am I different? Or do I still resort to the power plays and manipulative tactics like the rest of the world? Oh, friends, again, I say, let this be our prayer. Jesus, cause your agape love for all people to grow within us, that we might be a servant like you. So this theme kept coming up over and over throughout their apprenticeship. Jesus upending normal interactions, assailing multiple indictments against the religious elite for their manipulative and hypocritical leadership. He consistently made reference to the necessity of not taking the head of the table or not even to sit near the most important, but to take a lesser seat of importance. I'm telling you, servanthood was not just a lesson, it was a theme because it was the actual role the disciples were to fill. Well, one more time, let's, let's head back to the upper room for the night of the Last Supper. The scene is set for some of the most important reflections we hear from Jesus as he summarizes the work he's done with his disciples over the last three and a half years. I suppose there are few stories in the Bible that speak with such clarity and conviction is the one we're about to look at. The other three Gospels, Mark and Matthew and Luke, they say that at some point during the evening, one more time, a dispute also started among the disciples over which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Incredible, isn't it? And so perhaps, in response to this continued disorientation, Jesus gets up from the table and he wraps himself in a towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet one by one. And this is, the, of course, the, the job for the lowliest of servants. And he, yet he kneels before them, humbling himself. This is the position of a servant, after all. I mean, placing themselves in a lower position, looking up at the one being served. Well, Peter objects. No way, he says. You're too important to do such a lowly task. But Jesus insists. And so we pick it up in verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And I can hardly imagine that there was a dry eye in that room 
when they finally realize what a picture Jesus has just painted before them. Jesus is saying, don't you get it, guys? I came to serve, not to be served. Some people will want to have a big name or a fancy title. Be different. Some people will want to exercise authority. But follow my example. Be different. Well, as Baptists, we practice two primary ordinances of Christ, that of water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, we partake of the Lord's Supper, as Jesus actually said, to do this in remembrance of me. Uh, Many of you have heard me say this a couple times before, but in the denomination I grew up in, we actually observed a third observance, and it was this very scene. We washed each other's feet. We took our instruction from this very verse that says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And so maybe once a year or so, we would have what we called a foot washing service on Sunday evenings. It was kind of strange to a little kid, but over the years, as I came to realize the meaning of it, it was incredibly moving as a reminder of the servant life that we're to live. And it's one thing to hear about it or even talk about it, but it's another thing altogether to experience it firsthand. And one of the most powerful reflections on this story I've ever read about was by Pastor Todd Hunter. He was working with some young people who were struggling, and they were angry with the church, and and as such, they were seeking the pleasure of youth, drugs and sex and the like. And he could see he was getting nowhere with them as he tried to convince them of their disorientation to the good life. But one day, as he shared the hope and message of what Christ really came to do, to announce the kingdom of God's covenant with his people, he shared this story of the washing of the disciples' feet. And he said, Perhaps you need to answer a prior and more substantive question. Fundamentally, what kind of people do you want to be? Do you want to be fundamentally selfish, filling your hands with drug paraphernalia and sexual body parts of others? Or or do you want to fill your hands with the towel of Jesus and join him in washing the feet of people on earth? You have to choose. You can't fill your hands with both things. Only one thing will fit. Which will it be? And Todd said that, to his pleasure and astonishment, they got it. Their lives actually changed that day as they decided to follow Jesus into what they would later call the sacred order of the towel. Oh, I just love that. The sacred order of the towel. I mean, think about it, friends. We only have room in our hands to handle one thing. So what will it be for you? What's in your hand? And some people like to hold a scepter maybe a representation of their power and authority. I'm in charge. Or maybe in their hands they hold a sword. Words of insult and putting people in their place is the way of getting what they want out of people. And no doubt for some, their hands are gripping onto their wallet or even worse, a treasure chest holding on tightly to their possessions. And perhaps worst of all, many of us are guilty of holding a mirror, self-consumed and full of pride. But friends, I challenge you, lay down your scepter and your sword, put away your wallet, get rid of that hand mirror, and let's take up the towel. Let this mind be also in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. 
because when the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a servant. No one was beneath him. From cast-aside lepers to hated tax collectors, from a despised Samaritan woman of bad reputation to an adulteress caught in the act, from a thief on a cross to every sorry sinner that's listening to my voice, Jesus came to serve, to express perfect Trinitarian love, passionately committed to the well-being of us all, laying down his life for us all. Oh, friends, I hear a different kind of rally call today. Hollywood will often depict moments right before a big battle when a sheriff maybe declares a call to arms and his newly appointed deputies, they rush into the armory to take up their weapons from the gun locker. But I hear a different call to arms. Jesus the Christ, the suffering servant sent from heaven, calls us to take up the towel, to join him in the sacred order of the towel to walk in the way of love, to embrace the great reversal, to set aside our own selfish ambitions and positions and to give our lives away for the sake of others, to live life kneeling before the people in our lives, to wash their feet, to love them unconditionally in spite of their status or position or what they have to offer back, including the least of these wherever we find them, to sacrifice our time and energy to help others become their best God-created selves, to help them discover the life they were meant to live. Oh, how about it, D-Groups? Let's take up the towel and follow Christ into his loving brotherhood of servanthood. This is how we lead like Jesus. Whether it's at work or in your home, serve completely. Be a surrendered, selfless, submitted, sacrificial servant leader. And ultimately, this is how we're going to change the world. Small group. I mean, other than your own small group members, that is. <laughs> We're, we're going to talk a lot more about this one in the weeks ahead. But for now, just remember this. For some people, the front door to the kingdom may just be the front door of your own house. Ah, oh, friends, can't you see this? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The remaining authors of the New Testament would go on to embellish all that that command could, could mean. I've included a listing of those at the end of the transcript, so I want you to take a look at that when you can. But for right now, here's kind of a summary. They said things like this. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Serve one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Offer hospitality. And of course, they reiterate the original command to love one another. That makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? All those one-anothering verses add up. But that's what it takes to truly experience God's koinonia in our midst. So let's talk about how all of this might fit into your rule of life. Here are just a few more spiritual disciplines that ensure we are experiencing koinonia. The first discipline is that of corporate worship. Now, you might not think of going to church on Sunday as a spiritual discipline, but it really is. The weekly rhythm of celebrating God's goodness and greatness together with the family of God, that goes all the way back to the New Testament. But in today's culture, Sunday attendance seems to get more and more optional. But as an apprentice of Jesus, don't let it be that way for you. Secondly, is a discipline uh, Dallas Willard calls soul friendships. He describes it as engaging fellow disciples of Jesus in prayerful conversation or other spiritual practices. In other words, it's a circle of friends that commit to living the Jesus way together, soul friendships. 
At Northway, you'll probably best experience that kind of koinonia in one of our small groups or even in these D groups. I hope you're experiencing that. Or it might even be an even smaller informal group of fellow believers that commits to prodding one another on in this Jesus way. And that leads us to another important discipline. It's the discipline of hospitality. We see this vividly demonstrated in the New Testament church. Their homes were wide open to one another and, and to outsiders. We could, and really we probably even should do that with our own homes. Maybe just a time or two a month, maybe even once a week, breaking bread with friends and outsiders around the table, inviting Jesus to take a seat at the table and allowing his spirit to foster an atmosphere of koinonia. And then there's one final thing I'd like for you to prayerfully consider. You see, to be this kind of people, this kind of koinonia community, is what I call the fellowship of one anothering. This is a deeper vision of what the local church is supposed to be. It's not an individualized, consumer-driven approach to finding a church that has the best and flashiest programs, the, the hippest band, or the trendiest approaches. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with all of those things, but, but this approach is to go against the grain of church shopping and church hopping and to commit you and your family to your bigger church family. It's not about attending the church that best meets your needs. It's about spending a lifetime in the trenches and on the couches of the Christ followers that God has put in your life. Like other monasteries, the Benedictine monks would take vows of poverty and chastity and obedience. But St. Benedict added a fourth vow, and he called it a vow of stability. Listen to how one of the orders describes it on their website. We vow to remain all of our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. Now, of course, I'm not proposing that we all move in together on some compound, but there is something very appealing and deeply sincere about this concept that seems very New Testament to me, this vow of stability. Yes, there are times when God leads us into new chapters of life, but I don't think they happen near as often as our restless hearts may think, though I've certainly been guilty of hightailing it out of Dodge when things didn't go to suit me in past churches. But this is how I put it to Northway just a few months ago. I just want you to know that until God says otherwise, I've taken this vow of stability to stay here with you, to give my whole life for your sake, to live together, pray together, work together, relax together, play Mexican train dominoes together, serve our seniors together, to invite our unchurched friends into each other's homes, to patiently serve alongside you as we discover the lives we were meant to live, to grow along with you into the people God wants us to be. In a nutshell, the vow of stability that I've taken is this. This place and these people in the presence of Christ is enough. Oh, we may not be perfect in every way, but with Jesus at the center, 
in our commitment to love one another and spurring one another on in love and good works, this place is enough. And it'll be okay with me if we live and die together here, whatever else God has in store. So perhaps you'll want to consider making that vow with us. I encourage you today, friend, join the fellowship of one anothering. Let's experience the power of koinonia as God knits our hearts and lives together through His Spirit.